0: Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be. And I want to celebrate with you just for a moment. This week in our FBA, in our six, one of our sixth grade Bible classes, I found out that we had 12 kids who said that they gave their life to Jesus Christ this week. Let's praise the Lord for that. Amen. <laughs> And we are so excited about that. And some of them have already said, you know what, I want to get baptized at the outdoor baptism event on October the 3rd. And so they're gonna be stepping into that and taking their next step in that. And if you've never taken the next step of baptism, and you have trusted Jesus as your Savior. We want to encourage you to do that. You, you don't have to be baptized to be saved, but it shows the world that you are. And so if you would like to take that next step, go to the Next Steps table or fill out that connection card or go on to the text machine and tell them that you want to take that next step, and we would love to help you. Would you stand as you read God's Word, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1, or you can turn on your Bible on your phone. The Word of God says this, Peter... An apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for, the, for sprinkling with his blood, grace may grace and peace be multiplied to you. to look, you may be seated. Are you struggling in life? Do you feel overwhelmed and burdened? Are you worried about the future? Do you feel like you just don't fit in anywhere? Well, if that's so, you're not alone. Uh, most people, if not all people are of those type of struggles, most people don't know how or where they fit in. And so because of this uh, universal epidemic that we have and just not knowing where we fit in, that's where religion has sprung up in the world. And so if you think about all religions in the world function as a way to help you cope with life, suffering and with fear. Uh, Hinduism and Buddhism say that it's all about karma, and that if you can have good karma, then good things happen. If you do bad things, then you get bad karma, and bad things happen, and so you get the life that you deserve to live, and and this will also not only follow you in this life, but in the next life to come. Islam says that life is all about submitting to the will of Allah, and that if you can be a good Muslim and get enough credits, that you can get paradise and you can escape hell spiritualism new ageism says that life the secret to life is avoiding evil spirits and you can do so by wearing crystals the christianity gives us a resource so it separates christianity from all other religions in the world it gives us a a, a, a resource that is outside of ourselves and is found in the person of jesus christ who came to deliver us from this hostile world Well, we're beginning a series in 1 Peter, and so we wanna ask a few questions before we dive in. The first question we wanna ask is who wrote 1 Peter? Well, the answer is Peter. And some of you may be new to church, maybe this is your first time ever in church, you're like, who's Peter? Well, you're gonna probably like Peter because Peter was a down-to-earth guy. Uh, He spoke his mind, he had a big mouth, and he said a lot of dumb things. Now, who was Peter writing to? Well, he was writing to believers who lived in modern-day Turkey, but that day was called Asia Minor. These were predominantly non-Jewish people. They were Gentiles, and they were living in various locations, as you heard me list the names of those locations. Well, when did Peter write this book? Well, scholars tell us it was around 60 to 65 A.D., but most tend to believe it was at least after 64 A.D., and the reason why this is important is because the emperor of the Roman Empire was a guy by the name of Nero. Now, Nero was kind of a Looney Tunes guy. Uh, He killed his mother. Uh, He killed his first wife, and then he probably killed his second wife, and so you don't want to be married to Nero. Uh, Most believe that Nero, in July of 64 AD, is actually the guy that started the fire in the city of Rome. And so he burned down the city, and historians believe the reason why he burned down the city is because he wanted to renovate the buildings of Rome. The Roman Senate wouldn't let him, and so he just burned the sucker down. And so Nero, because the city has now caught into flames and many people have lost their homes and these great renowned buildings are now destroyed, uh, he had a public relations issue. And so like any good politician, he got on CNN, he got on Fox News, he got on MSNBC. He stood up in front of the Roman citizens and he said, the reason why this fire happened, it's those people that follow this religion, it's this new religious sect called the way. They're Christians. And they've been talking about setting the world on fire. Well, guess what they did in Rome? And so uh, Nero blames Christians for setting the city of Rome on fire. And what happened out as a result of that is that there became an intensified persecution of people who called themselves Christians. And so Many of these people who called themselves Christians were uh, captured. They were imprisoned. And Nero uh, would would tell his people to put them in animal skins, throw them into the arena in what would be called the circus. They would be a part of the circus. This isn't Dumbo Circus. This isn't Barnum and Bailey. This is a really horrible circus in which the entertainment wasn't watching uh, a juggling man or the bearded woman or somebody walking across a tightrope. This circus was watching Christians be eaten alive by lions and wild animals. If you didn't make it to the circus, then you would be dipped in hot wax. You would be nailed to a post, and you would be set on fire to light the gardens of Nero to be human candles. What a great time to live. So why is it that Peter is writing to these believers who thankfully were not living in Rome at the time, but why is he writing to them? And he's writing to them because they had questions and they needed answers to the questions that bothered them so. And these questions were questions about suffering, questions about being different. Because these early believers, here's what you got to understand. When we read the Bible, we think it's so far removed. But these are real people living in real time, going through real suffering. And they needed some answers because they felt like this world was now strange to them. And they were strange to it. And so Peter is writing to encourage these believers to say, you know, it's okay if you feel like a stranger in this world because that's really who you are. And so what I hope we learned this morning uh, is this, is that if you're a Christian, you have a living hope and a lasting inheritance in Jesus that enables you and I to live as a stranger and a sufferer in a broken, hostile world. So let's just look at those two things, a living hope and a lasting inheritance. Number one, a living hope. Verse one, we see here, the writer is Peter. And Peter is an apostle of Jesus. Now you're saying, what is an apostle? Well, that word apostolos means a sent one. So here, Peter is one that is sent. Who's he sent by? He's sent by Jesus, and he's sent as a messenger with a message to God's people. If you were with us last Sunday, we talked about that as Jesus on the mountain of uh, in the Galilee region, as he's commissioning his disciples, there were three convictions that we said. Number one, God wants to use me. Number two, God has empowered me. And number three, God is with me as I share the gospel with others. Well, here, Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so Peter here is a sent one, not speaking in his authority, but speaking in Christ's authority. It is Jesus who changed Peter's life from being a pebble named Simon to being a rock called Peter. And so he is writing to whom? To the elect. Now, this is an interesting word here. Some of you may be, what does this mean? Uh, is there a political election in, is the Bible that political? Well, no, here's what the word elect means. If you are a Christian, Uh, You are elect. You are God's chosen people. Some people say, well, pastor, how do I know if I'm elect or not? How do I know if I'm chosen or not? Well, the answer is this. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you are a part of the elect. You are God's chosen people. Now, somebody said a long time ago, I don't know who the elect are, so I'm going to nominate everybody. And that's really where I'm at. I don't know who the elect are, so I'm going to go up and I'm going to share Jesus with everybody. So he's writing here as a sent one to the elect exiles, an exile is someone who is not living in their home country. We have quite a few people in our church from different countries, and they moved here, and their nationality, their original birth was not in America, but they've now become a part of this country. But this is what it means to live in a country that you didn't grow up in, that is a foreign country. And so here he's saying that if you are a Christian, you are an elect exile. You're a stranger. You're a pilgrim. You're a sojourner. You don't fit here. You don't belong here, and you're different. You and I, if you're a Christian, are from a different country. We're citizens of a different land. And so because of that, we have different values, we have different morals, different priorities, different belief systems, different parenting styles, and different aspirations from the world. So have you ever felt like you just didn't belong here? You know, sometimes in life, you just look around, and you're like, you know, what? I don't really feel at home here. Well, there's a reason for that. And the reason is what he talks about in verse number two. The reason why if you don't feel like this world is home is because God moved into your life and he changed your identity. In verse number two, he says that according to the foreknowledge of God, the father, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And what Peter is saying is this, God, not on the basis of your or my goodness, interrupted our lives by his spirit through the gospel, and we obeyed by faith in the finished works of Jesus, and now we're different. We're different. So look at your neighbor and say, I'm different. And now look at them, and you say, you're different. Now, here's the thing. Have you ever been to the gym and and you're working out and you're having, you know, you're you're doing your thing and there's gym music that's going on and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's like ACDC and you feel like you're on a highway to hell and then the next thing you know, it's Roxanne and you're having all this different music and all this different thing going on. I know that was kind of 80s and 90s stuff, but you know, maybe there's some other stuff, but I don't listen to that junk. But anyway... And so you're, you're sitting there and there's music going on. You're pumping iron, you know, and I, I would flex here, but I don't want to rip this shirt. So just wait here for a moment. But, but so you're there and you're, 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 you know, you're working out. But you see this other person and they're like bebopping. I mean, they're getting with it and, you know, they're having a good time and they're lifting or maybe they're running and you notice they've got AirPods in. And so they, they've got all this music out here, but they're out here bebopping to a different rhythm. Why is that? Because they're not listening to the music in the room, they're listening to the music that's playing in their ears, and they're tuned into something else. Well, let me just tell you, the reason I'm telling you that is this, is because as a Christian, that's the way your life should be. The music of this world is playing, and it's playing one thing, but we're so tuned into God, we're not tuned into the rhythms of this world. And we may look weird, and we may look funky, but that's how it is. So here's what you have to understand. You are either following the rhythms of this world or you're following the rhythms of God. And if you follow the rhythms of this world, you'll be in collusion. But if you follow the rhythms of God, you'll be in collision. Now with that being said, here's what you also have to understand, 11 o'clock. Being different doesn't mean you get a free pass to be intentionally weird. Now some of you are already naturally weird. But don't get the like. Don't just say, "Well, here God says here I can be odd for Him." It's not being odd for God is not some badge you wear. Being different here isn't about dressing a certain way, not about doing certain things, not having some little Christian subculture. Here's what it means to be different: It's different in how you live your life. It's different in how you think. It's different in what you do. It's different in how you react. And so Peter says, "You know, listen, you are different." I am different, and it's all because of Jesus. And so in verse number three, Peter gets excited. He's a good old Baptist preacher. And he gets so excited, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He breaks out in praise. He gets his praise on. And he breaks out in doxology. And he gets so excited that he spews out a run-on sentence by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So verses three through 12 are one long sentence in the Greek. And he is praising God for the blessings that we have in Christ so that we can endure this hostile world. And he begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy. Here's what you have to understand about your life. Anything that's not the fire of hell is God's grace in your life. There's nothing in your life, there's nothing in my life that I deserve, it is all of grace. And so he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Now some of you, again, you're new to church and you've been hearing for years about these evangelicals, these born again Christians. It's not a new, fir- new term. Jesus said you must be born again. The word is regeneration, it's a new birth. But let's just think about this. If you're like brand new to this whole concept, let's just think a little bit deeper about this. Everyone in this room was born. Did you know that? You didn't hatch. Some of you were wondering if you did hatch, but we know that science has told us that all of us are born. you didn't come from a cabbage patch. And so at birth, you are identified genetically by your biological parents. And so when you were born, you inherited their strengths, you inherited their weaknesses chromosomally. You are identified with them ethnically, culturally, socioeconomically, and nationally. And so your birth identifies you. And here's the thing about your birth. You have no control over your birth. You just popped out. Well, Peter says that we have been born again. And what that means is that, yes, we have an, an identity in our original birth, but our new birth gives us a new identity. That regardless of what our old identity is, we who have been born again have a new life and a different life that is out of this world and is different from the world we're new spiritually. So he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope. Now this, this word hope is a strange word in our English language. We tend to think it as wishful thinking. So like I hope Florida State will win another football game. <laughs> Something that's not likely. <laughs> hope in the New Testament is different than that. It's an eager, confident, certain expectation. And so hope is a future event that will happen. And so Peter says that we have been born again into a living hope. And so hope is what you look forward to on the other side, on the other side of pain, on the other side of suffering, on the other side of heartache. Hope is what tells you everything will be okay. Uh, Hope is what tells you it will be worth it all. Hope is a huge word. And when you feel hopeless, you don't understand the impact it has. A few years ago, I was in Poland, and uh, one of the, I, was, I was there doing some mission stuff, but I wanted to make sure that I went to Auschwitz-Birkenau. Auschwitz, if you're not familiar with that, is the concentration camp in which uh, the, the, the Nazis systematically murdered millions of people. Uh, they would uh, wrangle up and get uh, Jews and political dissidents... Christians, they would round them up and they would put them in train cars and they would uh, l- unload them there and then they would systematically murder them. And so, one of the prisoners that actually survived Auschwitz is a guy by the name of Victor Frankl, and Victor is a Jewish Austrian psychoanalyst and he noted uh, how the different people in the camp responded to the suffering in the camp. And he said that the the prisoners responded one of four ways. And and he wrote this in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he said the prisoners, number one, some of them would respond by being brutal. They would be cruel. They, They wanted to grasp onto some sort of shred of dignity and power. And so they were just flat out evil and mean to other people. They were just brutal people, cruel A second way that people uh, coped uh, with this situation is that they just gave up. They refused to eat. They refused to get up. They refused to get washed. They refused to get dressed. They didn't go out to the parade grounds for inspection. They didn't do anything. They didn't move, and nothing would make them move. They just laid in the bed until they were beaten to death. The third is that these people held on to hope of returning to their old life. And so they thought, you know, if I could just stay alive, if I could just survive this camp, and and, and then I can get out of here, I'll get my health back, I'll get my family back, I'll get my career back, I'll get my fortune back, I'll get my position in society, it would all come back. And for the handful of people, for the few thousand people that actually survived Auschwitz, it never was the same. And many of them, even though some of them became even successful went into deep depression, and some of them committed suicide. But Frankl said there was a fourth way that people coped with the suffering, and that is that they had a hope in a fixed reference point that was beyond this world. That they held on to something that was out of the grip of death and suffering, and Frankl said those are the ones who overcame Auschwitz. In his book on page 94, in The Man's Search for Meaning, he says that life in a concentration camp tore open the human soul and exposed its depths. For those of you who have gone through excruciating difficult situations where it seemed like everything in your life that was meaningful was taken away, in those moments you found where your hope was found. Trials and pain have the keen ability to expose what we put our hope in and what our foundation in life is. See, life only has meaning if if we have a hope that suffering and death cannot destroy. Tim Keller on this passage says that there is no way to get through life unless you can handle suffering, and you'll never be able to handle suffering unless you have hope. Now, this world has hope, but it's a dying hope. It's hope in hope. It is hope that, that is uh, about circumstances changing. It's hope and change and change and hope, and it's this idea that one day I'll be happy, One day I hope I'll have a family. One day I hope I'll make a lot of money. One day I hope I'll be somebody. But here's the problem, that if it looks like you'll never get those things that you hope for, you just live your life in despair. Or for those who do get these things that they hope for, they find out that it was not enough to satisfy their soul. See, the world has a dying hope, but Christians have been born into a living hope. It is a hope that money cannot buy, disease cannot touch, and death cannot take away. And it is a hope that is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says we've been born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter here grounds our hope in the living Savior so that because Jesus is alive, hope is alive. And this is a hope beyond this life. It is a hope that is stronger than death. It's the fixed reference point You must keep your eyes on So it's a living hope. But secondly, it's a lasting inheritance. You've been born again into a living hope to an inheritance. This inheritance has been won for us by the cross in the empty tomb of Jesus. Peter here is continually using familial language. He used the word father, children born, reborn, new birth, and now he's using the word inheritance. So our new identity through new birth gives us an inheritance. This inheritance is that which we didn't earn and it's what we sang about. It is eternal life with God forever. So Peter is now going to describe what this inheritance is by using three words. Number one, imperishable. Number two, undefiled. And number three, unfading. We could go through the nuances of why he used those three words, but here's the big picture. Here's what Peter is saying. The inheritance that we have, that we've been born into, that we didn't deserve and didn't earn is something that will never lose its luster and never lose its beauty. It just keeps going and going. It gets better and better. As we say in Kentucky, it gets gooder and gooder. So that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Here's the thing about things in this world, even though you may be enjoying a lot of great things, things get boring in time. All these things that you've lived for, all these things that you've hoped for, all these vacations that you've planned, all this stuff that you've wanted to buy, all these things that you wanted to accumulate, all these relationships you've wanted to have, even in time, they get boring. But here's what Jesus says, and here's what Peter says, that the inheritance that you have in Jesus Christ is something that just gets better and better and better and better, And here's the good news. In verse number four, it says that it has been kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance, that is nothing that we can earn and nothing that we can deserve. And therefore, it's not up to us to keep or to worry about losing. Our inheritance is kept by God. And therefore, as we are kept by God, we can understand that this is ensured by the king of kings. And therefore, it is put away So that Satan cannot steal it, time cannot tarnish it, and death cannot destroy it. And he says in verse 5 that we who are being kept by God's power through faith. God gives you faith in the living hope that keeps you. God is preserving you. God's not pickling you. He's preserving you. And he's keeping your hope alive. And he's keeping your faith alive. Till that moment where your faith becomes sight and a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. All of us are putting our hope in something that is not hope so, it is certain so. And there's coming a day that it will be revealed. Here's what you have to understand about your salvation. Your salvation is really in three tenses. I am saved, I am being saved, and I shall be saved. And we're looking forward to that day that ultimate inheritance is given to us in Jesus in the future. And so that's great news, right? We have a living hope, a lasting inheritance, but now in verse number 6, Peter is going to take the reason why that's important and get to practical living. In verse number 6, he says in this. In what? In the living hope and the lasting inheritance. We greatly rejoice, though for now a little while, if necessary, you and I have been grieved by various trials. Notice it's interesting. He uses here that he says we rejoice even though we're grieved in both these words, we don't see it in our English, but both of these are present words. It's rejoicing and grieving. That's really what the Christian life is, right? It's rejoicing and it's grieving. It's rejoicing with a joy unspeakable, full of glory, but it's also grieving with deep sorrow. The word grieving here in the Greek is a word that actually described how Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane. So here, Peter says that we can rejoice now, even though right now we're suffering with deep grief, that is a joy and a sorrow that we have in the midst of our suffering. Now this seems like a contradiction, It seems very oxymoronic. How can you have real joy and real grieving at the same time? And that seems very counterintuitive to what many churches have been preaching about what Christianity is in America. This veneer of evangelical Christianity has been teaching for years and years that real Christians never cry, real Christians never grieve, real Christians never have real sorrow. And what we have is this this veneer of a best life now, Christianity, that represses all hurt and smiles all the way to heaven. The problem is, that's not reality. Christians hurt. Christians cry. Christians have pain. You say, well, that doesn't seem to be what I'm getting when I listen to a lot of music on the radio. But look at the reality of what Jesus endured. The Bible says that Jesus on the very night of his betrayal was in the garden of Gethsemane and was so overwhelmed with emotions and grief that he sweat blood. He grieved. And yet the Bible also says in Hebrews chapter 12 verse two that it was for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So Jesus had both joy and grief going to the cross. See what Peter is trying to get at in this whole deal is this. He says that you and I, we have to understand that our hurt is only so deep because our hope is deeper. See, our hope is in God who brings life out of death, gardens out of graves, and triumph out of tragedy. Our hope does not deny the reality of suffering. So we're not just saying it doesn't exist. But what hope does is it sustains us in the midst of our suffering, knowing that it's just for a little while. For a little while. Verse seven, he says, Understand that in this, You rejoice, even though for a season, for just a little while, if it's necessary, you suffer various trials and you're grieved by them. But verse seven tells us why. So that purpose statement. Here's what you got to understand. That so that's very important. You may say, so what? And Peter says, so that. It tells us that God has a plan for the pain. That is the tested genuineness of your faith. We only get a testimony out of a test. Some of you in this room and some of you watching online have gone through hell and back. And you stay, blessed be the name of the Lord. See, God puts our faith through a test to purify our faith. God's not punishing you. God is purifying you. Like gold is heated up so that the impurities in that gold can be taken away to So, pure gold. So God is testing you to shine in genuine faith. He knows the way that I shall go. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold, Job says. See, a faith that can't be tested should not be trusted. Is your faith authentic? Trials and suffering will reveal it. Is it real, or is it not? Do I love God, or do I just love the things that God gives me? Where is my ultimate identity is found? Where is my ultimate identity found? See, if you and I have hope that is greater than the pain, we can endure and rejoice. Tim Keller gives an illustration of two men working in a horrible factory. 12 hours a day, seven days a week, working hard, excruciatingly painful work. Both men signed up with one of them being paid $30,000 at the end of the year, and the other one, $30 million. The first guy who worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day, 365 days in the year, won't make it, because he'll say $30,000 isn't worth it. But the other guy, he thinks it's a breeze. He's singing zippity-doo-dar, zippity-day, because he knows that it's worth it. Listen, if your hope is only in this world's stuff, you're not going to make it. If your hope is in your health or your family or your work or your achievement or your money or your comfort, when it's taken away, you'll lose your hope. And when you lose your hope, you have nothing but despair. And that's how our world lives. And this is why people who don't have a relationship with Jesus or those who say they have a relationship with Jesus but are following the beat of this world are struggling to hang on because they are living for the things that are. But here's what I'm learning. If you live long enough, everything in this world that you hold dear will go. But Christians have a living hope, not based on circumstances. You you know the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer? A a thermometer registers temperature. It tells you how hot, how cold something is. A a thermostat is what regulates temperature. And so when it gets hot in your house because it's hot outside, the thermostat kicks on the AC. and, And magically, it brings the temperature down in the house. The thermometer may tell you how hot it is, but the thermostat fixes the heat, and that's what the living hope that we have in Jesus does, that when it's hot outside, it kicks on the inside to keep us regulated. It doesn't just tell us it's hot. It does something about the heat. And so Peter says it is our faith in the living hope based on a lasting inheritance promised by resurrected Savior that will be tested by fire and it will result in something. He says, the hope is, is that we may found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Normally, when we read that, we think, well, this is going to be praise, honor, and glory to Jesus, that we have, uh, we, we've made it, and, and we made it by fire, and our faith is tested, and it worked, and so Jesus gets all the praise and glory, and to a degree, yes. But this text isn't just talking about that. This text is saying that praise, honor, and glory are given to the person whose faith has been tested and approved by fire at the end of time. Do you understand that if you are in Christ, there is a process happening in your life? The first step was justification, the second step that we're living now is sanctification, and the third step is called glorification. And so at the end of time, when you are with the Lord, you are going to be glorified, and you are going to get the love, joy, and praise in which God the Father will say, well done. Welcome home. You are loved, my child. And when you and I hear those words, every horrible and painful circumstance in this old life will seem like a distant memory. And every wonderful experience that we have had in this world will pale in comparison to that moment. But how are we going to get that? It's because of Jesus. Verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter had seen Jesus, but these believers had not physically saw Jesus. But yet they loved him and they looked to him with an inexpressible joy. Why, because they were looking for him to bring about the outcome of their faith. One day, do you understand that all this stuff you've been living for and all this stuff you've been putting your faith in, one day that is gonna become reality. That there's gonna be the ultimate outcome of your faith and that is the salvation of your souls. You know, as I've been with people that are dying, one of the things that I share with them is that all this faith you've had in Jesus right now in this moment is the reason why. Because here in a very few days or in a very few hours, you're going to experience what you've been hoping in and hoping for all your life. See, I've not seen Jesus, but I love Jesus. Why? Because Jesus first loved me. And how do I know that? When Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's why we love giving Bibles to people. Why we love giving Bibles to first graders. It's because we want them to know that Jesus loves them. And so that's what we find in verses 10 through 12. Peter talks about this salvation, this good news, this gospel message. It's a message that the prophets spoke about. This is the message that the angels are riveted by. And it's the message that the Holy Spirit testifies in our heart. It's the good news of Jesus. And here's the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is not that God saves us from suffering. The good news of Jesus is that God saves us from our sins. Listen, God never promised to deliver you from a life of pain and suffering. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. The good news is it's just for a little while that if you know Jesus, the good news is is that he saves your soul and he forgives you of your sin. See the gospel message is not do good, try hard, and maybe God will forgive you. That's religion. It's not the gospel. The gospel says God loves you. Jesus did everything, absolutely everything necessary for you to be right with God. Trust in God and you will be forgiven see salvation for religion is you save you salvation according to the gospel is god saves you if i save me i'm going to hell tell you that right now if jesus saves me i've got a living hope and a lasting inheritance that's kept and guarded by god i'm going to heaven How do we know this? How how can we trust this? How can we trust this guy who's so excited? Because he knew by experience what he wrote about. You know, it's one thing for you to say you, to do something, but if you've never experienced it, well then who are you? Like the guy that writes on parenting never had kids, or the guy that talks about marriage and never was married. Peter knew by experience. See, what makes 1 Peter so remarkable is that Peter was an uneducated common fisherman whose life was interrupted by Jesus, and Jesus changed his life and also changed his perspective on life. But just because Peter was a Christian didn't mean that he was immune from suffering. Peter, which we'll dig in deeper, was brutally martyred for his faith in the living hope. And how could he die for this living hope? Well, think about his darkest day. Think about the darkest day in Peter's life. His worst day was Good Friday, crucifixion day. See, everything in his life fell apart that day. Up until this point in his life, he had based everything on the hope of a coming Messiah. And he believed Because John the Baptist told him that Jesus was HaMashiach, the Messiah. And Peter met Jesus, and because of that interaction with with Jesus, he forsook fishing, he forsook his family, he forsook his fortune, and he followed Jesus. And he followed him all the way to Jerusalem. And Peter was believing that, that that week in Jerusalem was the beginning of a party that was going to keep going for eternity. He thought that they were going to storm the gates of Jerusalem. Peter, that Jesus was going to knock out the Roman government and he was going to ascend to the throne of David and that Peter and all the disciples were going to rule and reign because the boys were back in town. But all his hopes were dashed on Good Friday. And Friday evening and Saturday were probably the darkest, most discouraging days of his life. But then Sunday came. He gets news. The tomb is empty. Peter and John run to the tomb. John wants us to understand he outran Peter. Peter, huffing and puffing, looks into the tomb. Nobody's there. Finally, in time, he sees Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and his sadness turns to joy, and his despair turns into delight, and his hurt turns into hope. And he realizes that during the darkest days of his life, God had a plan that on Peter's worst day, where it looked like God was out of control, God was the most in control. What looked like defeat was actually victory. See, Friday and Saturday were painful, but the joy of Sunday morning changed it all. Because Sunday reversed all the pain of Friday and Saturday. So as an older man, Peter is telling these believers, who are in fear for their lives. You're living in a Saturday world, but Sunday's coming. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy's coming in the morning. And if you're here today, or you're watching online, and you feel like your world is going to hell, there's hope. Sunday's coming. And God has brought you to this place or to you in this moment, watching for you to find your hope in the living hope. God wants to give you an inexpressible joy. He wants to save your soul, He wants to change your life. So here's the question Have you surrendered your life to Him? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Not in crystals not in Buddha, not in being a good person, not in going to church, not in baptism, have you put your faith in Jesus? And if you haven't, or if you're not sure, you can know today. If you're here and you've never experienced salvation, salvation is in the house of the lord and you just as you are regardless of how you were raised or who you are your old identity doesn't matter god wants to give you a new one today so would you just bow your heads everyone in the room would you just close your eyes just 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 do that for me and i want to ask you a question If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I just don't have this hope that you're talking about. I'm not sure that I'm saved. I'm not sure I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I need you to do something very courageous. No one's looking around, but I'm looking. And would you just look up at me if you aren't sure that you're saved? I see you. You can put your head up and down. I'll see you. We have different people looking at me in the room. And here's what I want you to do, those of you looking at me or you online, is that I want you to trust Jesus today. So I'm going to pray. And while I'm praying, you can call out to Jesus. I'm going to pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for those who looked at me just a moment ago. And I pray that, God, you would give them the courage to trust you as Savior your Holy Spirit would move in their hearts and God would they pray a prayer like this so if you're here and you want to trust Christ it's not some magical prayer but you can just pray out to God and you can pray a prayer like this Lord Jesus I know that I'm a sinner and I know that without you I have no hope but today I ask that you forgive me my sins because Jesus I believe you died on the cross and I believe you rose from the dead Jesus will you give me that living hope In Jesus' name. Every head bowed, every eyes closed. Here's what I want you to do. One last courageous thing. If you're here today and you just trusted Christ as your Savior, or you want somebody to pray with you, I want you to do something really courageous. It's going to be like out of this world courageous for some of you. Would you just raise your hand? I see you. You Put a hand down. Father, in Jesus' name, do what you would have to do. Amen. Let's all stand and sing.